0: This is Upwell, a new podcast from Only One, featuring entrepreneurs, advocates, and leaders working to protect and restore the ocean and the planet. And I'm your host, Aaron Kinnery. Today, we have Justine Lucas from the Clara Lionel Foundation, which invests in climate resilience and justice programs in communities across the Caribbean and in the United States. Let's dive in. Justine, thanks for joining Upwell. You lead the Clara Lionel Foundation. I wonder if you can just start by sharing a bit about the background and the mission of the foundation.
1: Absolutely. And thank you, Aaron, for having me. I've always been super inspired by your work. So the Clara Lionel Foundation was founded in 2012 by Robin Rihanna Fenty in honor of her grandparents. So she used her grandparents' names um, in the name of the foundation, which I think is always so special. CLF invests in climate justice initiatives in the Caribbean and the United States and helps communities prepare for and withstand natural disasters. Um, I'm really excited to dive into the depths of the work around the climate resilience and climate justice work, but one thing too that's really important to us is always giving back to Rihanna's home country of Barbados, so that falls under our legacy work as well.
0: Amazing. And the foundation just celebrated its 10-year anniversary. What have been some of the major achievements and areas of impact over the years?
1: Well, it it is an exciting week for us. Um, 10 years makes you pause and reflect a bit on uh, the journey that we have been on. We've grown exponentially in terms of the scale of the work. And over the course of the history of the organization, we have you know, iterated on our areas of focus, uh, really zeroing in on the Caribbean as um, an area that we we prioritize, and also the United States. Um, the work in the Caribbean is focused on climate resilience primarily, and our goal is for the Caribbean to become a climate resilient zone. Uh, that journey um, has been very interesting. We started doing a lot of emergency response to natural disasters, and I think. You know, when I started in 2016, that was really a priority for the organization, but the hurricanes kept coming. And so we pivoted the work, you know, to, you know, to focus on climate resilience. Uh, And then also we learned through all the equity work that we had done over the years that, you know, climate justice was a priority for so many of our partners. So in, in 2020, we stepped into that space and the journey has been, you know, really exciting.
0: Yeah, you mentioned the foundation started emergency response and then moved into climate resilience. How do you balance the immediate needs of disaster response with some of those long-term investments in resiliency?
1: So what happened for us is, you know, the the Caribbean kept getting hit by natural disasters. And in 2017, with hurricanes Irma and Maria, we, we just saw that. You know, after responding to those disasters, after investing millions of dollars, that it just felt like a Band-Aid. And, you know, realizing after seeing Dominica, 90 percent of the structures on that island were uh, impacted, many of them destroyed. So engaging in emergency response just feels like the tip of the iceberg of what needs to happen And knowing that these natural disasters are going to continue to get worse and are going to continue to impact this region in particular, climate resilience became more of a priority for us as an organization. We went through a really formal process of trying to figure out what role we could play in that space. So. You know, we are a moderately sized NGO and we know that there's so much um, important work happening by governments in the region. So we wanted to see the role that we could play, you know, in um, both the aftermath of natural disasters, but also in the long term to help communities prepare. And for us, that really ended up being focusing on critical facilities So in the most rural areas, the most marginalized communities, they really depend on their rural health clinics. They depend on the schools. They depend on shelters as safe places to go during emergencies. So CLF, you know, decided that our role was really gonna be focused on access to critical facilities so that communities can, you know, before, during, and after natural disasters have continuous access to those services. So across the Caribbean, we pilot projects. They're really infrastructure projects where we harden um, these buildings to withstand natural disasters. We equip them with renewable energy. We look at water sanitation supplies. They're very 360, so communities always can rely on them. Um, And the really cool thing about it is the renewable energy component allows those facilities like health clinics to continually save the $10,000 a month they would spend on electricity costs. So in a way, we're sustainably supporting these institutions. But then when an emergency happens, you know, those communities have a a safe place to go, a reliable access to health services, or their kids can go back to school quite quickly, or they have a safe place to, to have shelter. So. That is CLF's approach to climate resiliency, and we have a lot of projects that now demonstrate that, and um, we're really proud to be one of the few um, institutions investing in that actively in the region.
0: Amazing. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of those projects. I know you've made a lot of investments in supporting clinics and and, and in schools, but I also know you've also invested in improving information systems um, to help with both mitigating some of misinformation as well as improving disaster response. Um, So, uh, you know, we talk often about adaptation resilience, but I would love for you to take us into some of the in-depth components of some of those key projects that you've invested in.
1: Yeah, I think some great examples of the projects that we've done, you know, include in Dominica, we rebuilt the first two schools after the 2017 uh, hurricane season. So, I think that's a really good example of the intersection of emergency response and climate resilience. And those schools are now equipped with renewable energy. And um, they're beautiful examples of the projects. And even though it has taken a long time, we are going to sort of celebrate those projects because they are beacons of, of the work. And, and some of our first two projects that we we did um, in as part of the Climate Resilience Initiative, we also just completed Um, a major reproductive health clinic project in the Dominican Republic. And um, it's a beautiful project. Uh, We just were there visiting it in May. It happened during the pandemic. So over the the two years where it was very difficult to continue the work, you know, that clinic um, kept going. And another really strong example of the work that we've done in Barbados, we have a number of projects that we've done. Um, some are just getting underway, but another good example is the reproductive health clinic there. Um, it was right on the main road. It's currently still right on the main road because they are just moving into the new facility. But um, but yeah, it's a road that floods even in a light rainstorm. Um, it's just slightly below sea level, very close to the, the, the ocean. And not resilient in any way. So um, there had been a number of fires. They've had just they've had a lot of um, bad luck. And so they were looking for really a new facility that was resilient, but also larger to help support their services. So that is a project that's going to be opening quite soon. And the communication stuff you mentioned, I think, is a really good example of the way that we work When we decided to do the resiliency work, we wanted to learn from what was happening in the region. So we spent a lot of time with, you know, the preparedness offices that exist on on various islands, just learning from them about their communications infrastructure, um, trying to figure out how we could support the resiliency long-term of that infrastructure. And so our work in the space thus far has been research-based. We have a number of partners that are working on you know, multiple islands, really diving into how do people get their information before, during, after natural disasters, but also given the, the crises um, as of late, especially COVID, you know, how were people getting their information around um, that latest disaster that we faced and the, the parallels between, you know, the information that was needed for disbursement around COVID, misinformation that was happening in the region and what happens around natural disasters are really apparent. So that research is ongoing. And then, you know, the goal of that is to see how can we support um, access to information? Perhaps there might be technology solutions, but we, you know, we really are listening and learning from right now. It will be five different islands trying to see you know, what's needed and how do we help support improvement of those communication mechanisms.
0: I want to move on to discuss your work in climate justice. Our team was just with leaders from the Bahamas and the Seychelles. And we're talking about the disproportionate impact of climate change on small island states. You know, the Bahamas, for example, was devastated by Hurricane Dorian in 2019, three and a half billion dollars in storm damages in a country with a GDP of only about 10 billion. And the prime minister there estimates that 40 to 50 percent Of the country's national debt is actually climate change related and so i know clf provided immediate disaster relief after hurricane dorian but i wanted to expand into talking about how you think about climate change from a justice perspective either in your work in the caribbean or in the united states
1: it's such a great question the fact is under resourced countries communities of color and island nations are facing the brunt of the effects of climate change yet they're the least responsible. So it's obviously a justice issue. Um, you know, at CLF, when trying to figure out the role that we could play in this space, um, we took a look at how little funding was being given to grassroots organizations that are doing climate justice work. And in our approach has really been to acknowledge their deep understanding of, of what is necessary to achieve climate justice in their own communities. So we fund hyper-locally, again, both here in the U.S. and in the Caribbean. We do our best to lift the work of these powerful activists, these movements, the advocacy and policy priorities that they are championing. And and for us, you know, like, it, it has been such a journey of, of learning from these movements and, again, seeing how we can support and driving additional attention to them. In terms of the climate justice priorities that we have, We really look at in the U.S. land back issues. So helping support mainly indigenous populations that are fighting for protection of their lands, protections of their water. So that is super important. We look at BIPOC communities, organizations, movements in the South that are facing environmental hazards. We look at, you know, how do we support capacity building in the Caribbean? So many movements are just getting underway and, um, or just gaining momentum and how we can support that work is something that's important to us. And then lastly, loss and damage and reparations. Uh, There's so much work being done in that space. Some of it is exploratory. Some of it is really taking off and CLF is working to see how we can best support that work um, in the face of everything that's happened.
0: I do want to talk about the recent evolution and loss and damages fund, uh, in, in a few minutes as well. But over the past 10 years, the foundation has funded more than 150 projects and you have more than 80 partners. Who are some of those key folks that you've worked with in the climate justice space?
1: There's so many. Um, we had the great privilege of, you know, in, um, in earlier this year, actually we funded, um, at the tune of $15 million, uh, almost 20 different organizations of varying sizes across uh, the Caribbean and the U.S. Um, there's, there's organizations that are larger here in the U.S., like Movement for Black Lives or Center for Popular Democracy that are working on things like the Green New Deal or, you know, working towards bigger policy change. But then there's organizations that are Smaller in the Caribbean, like the Hay Campaign, that's just in Barbados, but works globally to support young people that are championing movements in their own countries. brings brings those folks together, helps support them, but it's it's you know born and living out of you know the small country of Barbados. So we we are just so excited to support um, organizations that are working on policy change, that are working on supporting. Uh, young people. Um, and it's it's such a breadth of issues. And I definitely would recommend if you're looking to fund in that space, all of the information on all of our partners is is on our website and on our social media. We try to lift up their work all the time and and really try to drive additional funding, resources, energy to everything that they have going on.
0: Great. Your background is in community organizing, and grassroots advocacy, and you've done a lot of work in international development and media as well. How has this wide-ranging experience informed how you approach this work?
1: I mean, I think you just said it very well. Like, it started for me with the organizing and activism. I studied social justice movements in college, and I feel like I found my voice in the anti-war and divestment movements um, that were happening at my university, but also New York City and in, in the early days of my career. And I have had a career that's been based in human rights, whether it's from access to justice in West Africa to advocacy efforts around ending extreme poverty from my time at Global Citizen to you know, really saying yes to the job at Clara Linnell Foundation because I realized that our founder's passion was in supporting folks facing the toughest challenges. Personally, nature is what grounds me, so and it's really what inspires me, and I like to spend my free time exploring some of the most remote places on the planet, and I never really imagined that climate work would intersect so heavily with my career. So I send in a lot of gratitude that I get to work on kind of the people side of climate in a space that needs far more activism on some of the most important justice issues of our time. So it feels like I've gone on this journey of working in international development, activism, all of that, the lessons I've learned and, you know, the energy I've gained from that work now intersecting with climate in a really, um, interesting way. Um, it's been a great privilege.
0: You mentioned your work has taken you to all corners of the world. And I know that listening to and learning from the local community is so critical to this effort. I wonder if there's an example where you're thinking on a potential approach or solution really shifted after spending time in the community.
1: In 2018, we were in Puerto Rico visiting a reproductive health clinic there that hadn't yet opened after the 2017 hurricane season, and uh, we're sitting around a table listening to the stories of um, these women's experience through the through the hurricane, their experience in trying to reopen the clinic, just hearing for a few hours about the fact that that community didn't have access to that clinic, to those services, learning about all the services a more rural reproductive health clinic provides. It's not just sexual and reproductive health services. And it's not just about um, prenatal care, about you know maternity care. It's really about so many other pieces. It is a safe place people can go. It's a place that they can access any basic health service. They were really grounded in community and here they were, you know, a year after the storm and they had not yet opened. So for us, that was a brilliant experience of learning how important these critical facilities are for communities, of really learning how these issues intersect. So reproductive health access, women's rights, health access in general, and the need for climate resilience Like we learned so much from that conversation. And it helped really shift the priorities for CLF from, you know, thinking about the climate resilience of health facilities, but also thinking about intersectionality and how we support women who, you know, really after natural disasters, the statistics show that they really get left um, to the last to be supported um, in emergency response efforts. And so for us, like learning about that intersectionality and prioritizing that as an organization you know, really came from originally that conversation.
0: You mentioned your work with Global Citizen, an organization that leverages media and talent to reach, educate, and engage audiences. And it's very similar to what we're trying to do with Only One, combining content with campaigns and crowdfunding to advance ocean conservation. I wonder if you have any advice for how organizations can most effectively harness media to advance change.
1: I feel like the the thing I learned at Global Citizen and I think the the piece of work that Global Citizen really shines at is leveraging influencers, leveraging media around specific policy moments or policy opportunities. I think the space philanthropy, impact, nonprofit work often gets distracted by the idea of having a spotlight on the work by the idea of having an influencer engaged by the idea that awareness is uh, an outcome. And I I think it's important for us to shine light on, you know, the challenges, the need for more work and energy to be put on, um, you know, these spaces. But I do think that awareness for awareness's sake does not necessarily lead to outcomes. It doesn't lead to solutions. So I always say that, you know, when you are trying to, you know, take advantage of a media moment, whether you're, you know, including an influencer or not, you're trying to take advantage of an event, um, you know, these are all tools and a tool belt, but I don't necessarily think that they are the outcomes. The outcomes that we're trying to achieve, you know, whether, you know, include increasing resources towards an issue, include policy change that advances the issues we work on. So I, I always think that you should look for critical moments um, to to leverage the voices, to leverage media moments, to really um, move things forward.
0: And I do want to build on that a little bit. I know a big part of that work was around marshalling grassroots supporters to unlock government funding to support critical humanitarian efforts like public health and poverty alleviation. And so back to the loss and damages fund, you know, coming out of COP27, we saw the creation of this new fund. And I wonder how you think about leveraging the work of advocacy and also philanthropic dollars to unlock additional resources to support climate resilience. Is that a key part of your strategy? Should more organizations think about this? Because, you know, philanthropy can only sometimes go so far.
1: It's such a key part of our strategy. You know, I I think I mentioned that the Caribbean becoming a climate resilient zone is a priority for CLF. We see the projects we do in the Caribbean, um, the climate resiliency projects as pilots pilots that we want to scale by increasing resources to the region for resiliency efforts so for us you know we have a founder that has a really powerful voice and again we channel that towards advocacy opportunities um you know we definitely get hit up all the time with asked for her to raise awareness of various issues as as they relate to climate and you know i think the way that she leverages her voice is to put pressure on world leaders or companies or governments to increase their funding uh, around these issues. And I think, you know, Global Citizen and other organizations that do advocacy work, they're trying to unlock funding at scale. Cause, you know, there's only so many resources we can raise from individuals, but governments, multilaterals, large-scale corporations have access to resources that's of a magnitude that really can move the dial on these issues. So with CLF, you know, something that we think is so important is really leveraging the pilots that we do to put pressure on the local governments to prioritize climate resiliency, but also multilaterals and um, international governments to prioritize this issue and drive resources towards the Caribbean. So the recent win at COP of the creation of the Loss and Damage Fund for countries hit hard by natural disasters is a big step in the right direction. And, you know, I know that prime minister Motley of Barbados was such a champion of that work. And, you know, we really take her leadership in this space because she has been working on these issues and really representing the region as a whole around these issues for so long. Um, And we are so lucky to work closely with her team and, Again, you know, our work at CLF partially is to do these pilots, but partially just really to lift up and support the work happening locally. And she is really the face of the region in, in championing climate resilience, preparedness, really shifting the way that developing countries and the countries most hardest hit by climate change you know, receive funding and um, invest in preparedness in a a really active way. So we were excited to see the announcement of the fund. And I do hope that it does receive in time the funding that it, it requires and
0: deserves. A few final questions. What advice or insights do you have for other philanthropic leaders?
1: Well, one thing I think that is so important to us and what we've learned from our journey in this space is To fund grassroots, to fund locally, if you're going to engage in emergency response around any kind of natural disaster, don't look at the big institutions. Like the media tends to drive a lot of attention to larger nonprofits, larger NGOs. And although a lot of them do really great work, it is possible to find grassroots, hyper-local organizations that are really in community and really addressing challenges day by day. I think a good example of what CLF did um, post the earthquake in Haiti last year is we found uh, seven different local Haitian-led grassroots organizations to fund. And we were able to to drive a million dollars towards these like really local efforts and people were surprised by that. You know, Haiti is has a reputation for being a difficult place to work. A lot of different organizations, funders, even the State Department reached out to us asking how we'd found these organizations, vetted them. Had we vetted them thoroughly, there was a lot of surprise to our efforts and, and our, our response there. And I don't think there needs to be surprise. Like, these orgs are in community, they're there. If you are planning as an institution to engage in any kind of emergency response efforts, there's so much work you can do on the front end. It shouldn't just be this reactionary thing where you know the disaster occurs, you give out the money, you forget about it, you walk away a week later, um, all the media attention goes away and the communities are really left to pick up the pieces themselves there's so much work that can be done on the front end to really do the research, to to get to know the communities you hope to serve, to recognize that disasters are going to come and certain communities are more vulnerable and susceptible to those disasters.
0: Last question. How can listeners get more involved to help support the work of Clara Lionel Foundation?
1: Well, this week we celebrated our 10 year anniversary. It's been quite a wild ride and you know, we, as part of our reflection on the journey that we've been on, we did create a video. We created a micro site um, on our website that really celebrates 10 years of impact. So I would encourage you to, to go check out the website at, at clara lay foundationorg but also on our social media, we do lift up a lot of our partners. So following us on social is a good opportunity to learn about a lot of the grassroots community-based organizations that we serve. And um, and then also learn more about the issues that we work on and we try to drive meaningful action, particularly on you know Instagram stories of things you can do when there's moments and there seems to be so many more moments these days. So I would definitely encourage you to go on the journey with us on social.
0: Well, thank you. And I'll be sure to drop links to the social media and the website for the foundation in the show notes. Justine, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. And I I also just really appreciate the work that the foundation is doing because you don't take sort of the easy route. You, you, You spend more time and you take sort of the, the, the longer term thinking that I think is critical to build that local capacity. You know, you have all this incredible global attention you're able to marshal, but then you spend the time in the communities and investing and building them up uh, and, and doing that as a partner uh, with them. So I, I think it's fantastic and I hope more folks look to the work that you're doing as an inspiration to fuel their work as well.
1: Thank you so much, Erin.
0: Thanks so much, Justine, for sharing your work investing in the communities most impacted by climate change. I'll leave links to where you can find the Clara Lionel Foundation in the show notes, which you can find at only.one forward slash upwell. Once again, that's only.one forward slash upwell. This week's episode was engineered by Jake Bowles. Research was supported by Serena Cooper and our cover art was designed by Joanna Marcus at Only One. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and start your journey to help save the ocean and fix the climate today at only.one. For as little as $9, you can start planting coral and mangroves and removing plastics and carbon. Again, that's www.only.one. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back next week with an all-new episode of Upwell.